0: Hello and welcome back to Integral Care's podcast, This is Integral. My name is Ann Nagelkirk and I'm the Director of Communications at Integral Care. Today we're looking back at our community forum, Improving Criminal Justice Outcomes for People Living with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities or IDD. It was a great event that focused on how community-wide collaboration is improving outcomes for people living with IDD who also intersect with the criminal justice system. We brought together an amazing group of panelists from Integral Care Austin Police Department, Travis County Sheriff's Office, and the Travis County Juvenile Public Defender's Office. These organizations are really working together to make a difference in our community, and today we're gonna hear more about how they're partnering to do so. I'm excited to introduce Ken Winston, our Director of IDD Services, and Sarah Kirkendall, one of our IDD team leads and a forum panelist. Both have been instrumental in spearheading and leading programs at Integral Care that support individuals living with IDD in our community. For those of you who don't know, Integral Care is the local mental health and intellectual and developmental disability authority for Travis County. We support adults and children who live with mental illness, substance use disorder and intellectual and developmental disabilities. Sarah and Ken, welcome. you oh, yeah Thanks, Ann. So, what did you guys think about the forum?
1: I thought it was really good. I think um, I was really impressed with the turnout that came. Um, I think it's a really strong indication that our community is taking this issue very seriously and are interested in solutions and and how to move forward.
2: I think I think it was really great. It's uh, wonderful to see our great Uh, partners in law enforcement and legal come together and and share information and then share that with the public. So
0: over the course of the forum, um, our moderator, Louise Lynch, who is our provider network authority officer, and she was actually a former director of IDD services at Integral Care, um, guided our panelists through um, a really interesting conversation that explored how all of these organizations represented are truly supporting people with IDD and strengthening the overall health of our community through teamwork and collaboration. So Sarah kicked off the forum talking about what Integral Care does in the community and uh, what we know about outcomes when it comes to people with IDD who intersect with the criminal justice system. So before we get started, Sarah, how does Integral Care support people with IDD who intersect with criminal justice?
1: So our main focus is on prevention, so of trying to identify ways to reduce the likelihood that the individuals that we serve interact with the criminal justice system. But when we do, the focus then becomes on incorporating the criminal justice system from law enforcement to the correctional setting to attorneys into that collaborative system so that we can all work together to identify solutions and hopefully help individuals return to their home faster and with more appropriate supports in place. And I just want to add that the work that we do with Crisis Intervention and Criminal Justice
0: is just a small piece of all the services that we offer to adults and children who do live with IDD in our community. Mm -hmm. That's right. So um, we are doing some important work, as I mentioned, and I want to hear what Sarah had to say when it comes to outcomes.
1: Across the nation, individuals with IDD interact with the criminal justice system at rates higher than those without that diagnosis. Um, It's important to note here that while our focus is um, when that interaction is due to the individual being an offender or possibly a suspect. Um, Individuals with IDD are also at an increased risk of interacting with the criminal justice system as victims. Because existing psychiatric services are not routinely accessible for individuals with IDD, um, law enforcement is often forced to make the decision between arrest and allowing an individual to remain in a potentially dangerous or unsafe situation. Um, Once an individual with IDD is arrested, they tend to remain incarcerated for much longer periods of time. Um, and they are disproportionately represented in the jail system. On average, there's only about two to three percent of the population that's diagnosed with IDD. In the jail system, some studies are showing that's as high as 10% of the inmate population has an IDD diagnosis and they're staying incarcerated for longer stretches of time. It's also important to note that there's little to no evidence that shows that individuals with IDD engage in criminal activity at rates higher than the general population. They just don't have access to resources and alternatives to incarceration or uh, opportunities for release.
2: So uh, Sarah really articulated all of that really well. And that, that's absolutely correct. And there's so uh, limited resources for people with IDD in the community. So you can just imagine, uh, you know, once they're in jail, the resources are even more limited and that that's that's just an artifact that's the reality and the goal of uh, our uh, law enforcement and corrections is to keep everybody safe and so part of it is you know not just folks with idd So the resources that people with IDD need in jail, they're not getting it, so they don't have opportunities to have things that self-soothe them, that calm them. Some people like to take a walk. They're not able to do that in jail. Sometimes they may be isolated from the rest of the population, and those things make it difficult. And so we've been working on different things to see how we can help people um, divert from jail. And, um, you know, we've, uh, we've actually started the IDD MH Criminal Justice Collaborative, which we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later in in the program. Thank
0: you. So at the forum, one of our goals was to help our audience understand the different ways that people with IDD can interact with the criminal justice system. And that could be in the community um, with the Austin Police Department, in jail with the Travis County Sheriff's Office, or with the juvenile justice system. Um, Let's start with APD. So Senior Officer Ashley Uniskevich she is with the crisis intervention team she talked about some common scenarios for APD
3: so our role as officers um, obviously we respond to 911 calls so we're really not showing up unless somebody has called 911 oftentimes people um, will call 911 on this population for a lot of times it's verbal disturbances Um, we get called to day habs quite a bit um, because of the um, overcrowding at them oftentimes and it's you know not enough staff members to kind of de-escalate situations Um, you know somebody's not listening they want them to go inside and they want to stay outside so a lot of times our role is to play mediator um, in these situations Um, we do get called to family disturbances this time, at times as well. Um, as Sarah said, there's not many resources um, for this population or their families. So a lot of times families are calling us just because they're kind of at their wit's end and they just need some help um, mitigating a situation we do everything in our power not to make an arrest on this population because we understand that there is more going on our officers get up to um, 120 hours of training in mental health and IDD um, so they are very well versed in this um, and with taking calls they understand that somebody might steal a candy bar if they have an IDD do they don't need to go to jail right there's something else behind that um, we are able to divert from jail for many um, misdemeanor crimes, um, and we do that on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, so the trainings focus on providing information just about the various um, IDD diagnoses that exist, um, how each of those may present, and um, what signals to look for so that they can start to pick up earlier on that the individual that they're interacting with possibly could have an IDD diagnosis. It's not always possible for them to know for sure um, without maybe having the person's records or having somebody there to provide that information. Individuals with IDD may not be able to share that information or want to share that information. So we're really just trying to give officers um, kind of some insight into those diagnoses so that they can start to kind of look into that a bit more as a possible um, contributor to the uh, interaction that they're having. Um, The trainings also focus on um, meeting the unique communication needs of the population, being able to modify um, their questions and the information they're sharing so that they can ensure that the individual understands, um, as well as uh, different ways to modify their overall approach so that that will encourage and facilitate a more effective de-escalation in the moment and hopefully avoid um, the need to remove the individual from their home. Thank you. Next, we heard from Deputy
0: Chris Walsh from the Travis County Sheriff's Office. He's a mental health officer, and he talked about what happens when someone with IDD is in jail. So let's hear what he had to say.
4: So from intake when they arrive to the jail that process where we're evaluating we're getting as much information or background as we can trying to assess really what's going to be a resource available or a need there and as it continues through that process then it's really about placement in the jail based on classification or need. So we have a number of facilities at the jail and we have a number of different people who, have, who fit into a criteria. We're not as specialized though that we have a building just des- designated for people with IDD, it doesn't work that way. But with our jailers, um, really what it comes down to is it comes down with corrections officers providing care uh, for those individuals. Um, when it comes to IDD, that is something that we look at offering training for our officers because for a lot of them, this is very new to them and when you're talking about managing or modifying behavior in the jail setting, it's important. Their main priority is safety and security, obviously, um, and then providing the basic essentials for the day, um, from clothing, to food, to schedule. So all that comes into play when you're dealing with someone who suffers from any type of mental illness, and most specifically, IDD. As you've heard, the population can rise, and depending on the situation, Uh, The population of IDD may be anywhere from one person in jail um, with IDD to three or four or five. And so then we're talking about housing. That really dictates what type of resource we can do, what we can give for them. Um, Once again, as they're being arrested, those alleged charges come into play. So if they're misdemeanors or felonies, that has a lot to do with how long they will be in the custody of the jail while they're awaiting court or for a resource. So it's really just our care. Um, Those officers provide 24-7 care. So in dealing with that in knowing that, we do we are now and have been and continue to offer training to officers to know things about descriptions and characteristics of IDD, uh, things like triggers, um, behaviors, um, how to support how to be patient, um, staying away from maybe an overreaction to that, understanding a little bit more about disease itself and then working through that.
1: So, Officer Walsh really touched on um, the reasons why it was so important that we tailored our training to their corrections officers, specifically for the correctional setting, Um, and while the training is very similar to the ones that we did with APD and other uh, field-based officers, it also included a large component of training that's very similar to ones that we do for caregivers because they are essentially the caregivers for individuals with IDD while they're incarcerated. And since um, kind of as we touched on earlier, individuals with IDD are remaining in jail longer, it's mo- even more important that they know how to meet those needs and be able to make um, reasonable accommodations and modifications to the way things are, are handled in the jail so that um, further crisis can be avoided.
0: So our final panelist was Cameron Johnson and he's with the Travis County Juvenile Public Defender's Office and he talked about um, their work with youth um, during, before and after court. And Cameron is the Chief Juvenile Public Defender. So let's hear what he had to say.
5: So our main goal is one, is that um, no youth will face the gavel alone. And number two is, is that we're gonna provide representation before and during or after. When I say before, is, is that as soon as that we are identified that a <laughs> youth is, is, has been taken into custody or is going to go to court, we will be there, meet with them in detention um, before they get into court. In many cases, that's within 24 hours. And so we are being able to work with them, get an idea of what's going on, talking with their family members and having them prepared. So we don't ever want to have a situation where the first time a youth is seeing us is when we're in court. And I'd say during during the court process is that we are providing the representation. And then also afterwards, We've, we've got a unique um, situation when we're dealing with the IDD. My goal is to divert those youth outside of the juvenile justice system. And so that's where we spend a good function of our time. Unfortunately, um, sometimes it's, um, our work is really finding um, community-based services and getting those youth outside of the system. Because one thing that we've learned is, particularly when they're in custody or detention, that's the one place they don't want to be, and those detention facilities, um, those are not hotels. And so we've got to learn how to being able to deal with that unique population, and that's what we focus on. Um, And, you know, we've been very successful at that. And it's only been um, having with the collaborative efforts, you know, working with, you know, from the arrest, working with parents, working with the community-based partners and helping us and educating us. And, and, you know, we have to keep up with what's going on because one thing that I found out about that IDD population is, um, for the most part, is is, um, the youth don't want to acknowledge that they have you know, um, you know, IDD diagnosis. And so um, it's very, very important that we work um, and we spend time and using our skills and talents and being able to, to identify this use and finding out what's going on. Because in many cases, we're gonna get referrals, you know, from um, the schools, you know, it's gonna be coming from homes, and then they can be facing some serious consequences. And so we've got to be cognizant of that and really work hard to being able to do what we are um, mandated to do, and that is is to find them services and get them treatment um, <laughs> while minimizing the, um, the legal sanctions of the um, reason that they were brought into our system.
2: So uh, Mr. Johnson is absolutely right about, um, you know, um, young people having a very difficult time acknowledging the fact that they have a disability, particularly a disability like intellectual and developmental disabilities and if we think about the stigma associated around with mental health and mental illness and you know for for decades and decades you know it's, it's become more uh mainstream in terms of the way we communicate about these things and, and yet, there's that stigma associated, even, even after all that time. And now, you know, when you think about a, a young person, maybe 15, 16, 18, even 20 or 22 or whatever, uh, having to say, "Hey, you know what? I have an intellectual disability and/or a developmental disability," and it's like, um, like a moderator said at the uh, at the at the forum. It's almost like saying it's better to acknowledge that i did something bad rather than you know say uh, you know i have an intellectual and development disability so that is a challenge and that's something we continue to work with with the people we serve and with law enforcement as well uh and you know the, the part of it is uh, the you know we've talked about it quite a bit Is the the increased need for training and the acceptance by our law enforcement partners by the our partners in the legal profession that that training is needed Uh, In fact, uh, with the um, Juvenile Public Defender's Office, we were uh, really fortunate that they invited us earlier in this year to provide uh, trainings to their uh, new employees, as well as for refresher trainings as well. And that training really encompassed uh, Something that's really important that I feel really important in that uh, we provided a history of the people with developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities in, in the United States. So giving them a little bit of a historical uh, context and what people went through in, uh, from, institutional, from institutions to deinstitutionalization and how things even then went that great with the ultimate goal for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities being able to have them live in the community in the least restrictive environment and just living like anybody else. So
0: part of um, Interval Care's work in preparing to train our criminal justice partners was getting up to speed on their processes so we could be informed um, when we came to the table with them. So Sarah gave us some good background on um, what we did to prepare and build those partnerships.
1: And I really have to commend everybody that's on this panel, they've really reached out, they've accepted training, they've worked hard to educate themselves on this population. And as the community, we have that same obligation. We need to understand what decisions and why officers are making those decisions for emergency detentions. What information do they need from us in in order to do that? When we describe things as behaviors, that's not psychiatric. So we have to understand what is that information that they're looking for. So we had to really educate ourselves on what goes on at each branch of the criminal justice system Um, What barriers exist and what places can there be modifications? And there can be change and there can be room for collaboration. And so we really had to take the responsibility to also educate ourselves on that and not just expect these systems to bend to our population. We asked as many questions as we possibly could. Um, We tried to educate ourselves as much as possible. And really the goal for that was so that we could take that information back to the community and provide that training and that understanding of these systems caregivers when you call 911 you can't just say this person is having behaviors you need to tell them has there been a lack of sleep has there been an increase in agitation over a period of time how is their appetite do they have a mental health diagnosis in addition to that is there any psychosis is there any uh, thought or indication that there might be psychosis you had to give that whole picture and it was really through being able to ask those questions that we were able to pass that information on on, so that we could reduce the frustration because often what we would hear is, I called the hotline or I called 911 and they didn't do anything. Well, the responsibility was on us. We weren't given the right information and so we had to find that out.
2: So again, you're absolutely right that, you know, training is so critical and we're really, uh, you know, um, always focused on that. I'm really proud of our division at Integral, Integral Care about, um, you know, what Sarah's work with, um, the, you know, providing training to the Travis County Sheriff's Office, uh, the Austin Police Department, and, and you know, really... Customizing those trainings to to the situation and to the law enforcement agency, and with that, actually, we've provided I, I think about over 1,100 um, uh, members of law enforcement and over 40 trainings um, just in the, maybe a little over a year, and we've we've actually trained um, a whole a spectrum of uh, the legal profession and law enforcement you know like i mentioned earlier public defenders judges prosecutors and you know uh, employees of the juvenile justice uh, juvenile probation department and um, We've been actually uh, doing this, the Travis County Sheriff's Office. We've been probably uh, been training them for about three years, Sarah. Mm-hmm. I think okay, and APD for maybe uh, about a, a year and a half. A year and a half, okay. Yeah, and so we're really excited about that, and um, you know, look forward to continue to do those uh, trainings. I do want to just add one piece because I did say I'd come back to it. Uh, is um, you know when Cameron Johnson was speaking about diverting people from jail. And we recognize that as an issue and so we actually created a, um, a, um, a collaborative. Uh, it's the uh, IDD, the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Mental Health Criminal Justice Collaborative, which is a collaborative with uh, the Travis County uh, Public Defender's Office, uh, the Travis County uh, Criminal Justice Attorneys, and the District Attorney's Office, as well as Travis County uh, Sheriff's Office. So basically what we do is we, we, we get notified or we're informed or otherwise find out about people uh, who are in jail, who may be clearly identified and diagnosed as having uh, an IDD diagnosis, or may uh, be potentially uh, have an IDD diagnosis, and those folks are referred to us. And so we staff these cases with the District Attorney's Office and uh, the persons the person who's in jail, their attorney, uh, the public defender's office, or uh, someone from the Travis County Sheriff's Office, and we staff these and see like what is and these are this is what's called uh, a felony docket. So these are only felony cases that come up, the serious cases, and so we kind of talk about it and see uh, what is what is the situation that actually caused this to be a felony uh, uh, case. And sometimes it's a serious assault and sometimes it's something, and I I don't want to minimize this, but it might be something like maybe someone just pushed a police officer and that raised it up to the level of, uh, of of a felony offense. And now the person's potentially going to be sitting in jail for six months, a year. And oftentimes what happens is that's that's the other side that makes things complicated a lot of times uh, folks with uh, an IDD diagnosis who are in jail they're the very people whose family and providers oftentimes don't have the wherewithal to figure out how to divert those people from jail and so sometimes they may just languish there with normally they might be we might be able to get them out quicker so this criminal justice collaborative that I'm talking about is um, what we try to do, we try to staff those cases and see, okay, you know, can we uh, lower the charges? Can we dismiss the charges? And we've had a great partner. I mean, I've talked about some of the other partners, but we've had a great partner. We have a great partner with the district attorney's office. And they're really, really uh, sympathetic to the work that we do and really are good partners. And we've actually, uh, I think in the last year and a half, we've uh, resolved about over... Forty cases, wow. um, and um, so either uh, you know uh, had the person uh, diverted from jail to some other community option, or reduced charges, and uh, or you know kind of had them diverted to some other facility. So um, that's something that we're working on. So we ha- yeah, just had to get creative with mm-hmm. uh, with these situations.
0: Cool, and Sarah, you talked about. Um some data that we're tracking, mm-hmm. and this is making an impact, a huge impact in the community, the training yes. that we're doing.
1: And so about a year and a half ago, we started tracking data to see what were the reasons why people were being arrested, what, how long were they remaining in jail, what were the different outcomes coming from that situation. And so what, and just from tracking data, then that also helped us kind of streamline processes because then we started to identify trends and areas where we could do different interventions or kind of adjust what we had already had set in place. And um, almost from one quarter to the next, we saw a pretty significant reduction across the areas that we were tracking. So we saw um, a significant decrease in the amount of time between the person being arrested and when our local authority was notified, which allowed us to jump into action faster and and be able to start doing the the different things to help somebody get out of jail that Ken mentioned. Um, There was also a significant um, number of decrease in arrests. And there's a lot of factors that come into that, not just tracking the data and the things that we're doing, but also the willingness on the part of law enforcement and the community to learn how to improve that on all sides. And then um, just the decrease in the amount of individuals who were being found incompetent to stand trial, they were, we were able to then uh, look into other options for release besides that. Um, as well as a decrease in the overall amount of time an individual is staying in jail because the faster that we're able to jump into action and figure out a plan for housing, figure out a plan to put supports in place, figure out training to provide to caregivers so that they feel more well equipped to help support the individuals that they're working with, um, we were able to help uh, move people out of the jail system a bit faster.
0: So before we wrap up, what do we want our community to know when it comes to people living with IDD? Let's just highlight a couple things that would be important for the general community to know about um, you know, this group of people.
2: I think the, the number one important thing to know is that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities want to live lives just like anybody else. They want to work, they want to have relationships, they want to go to their religious places, they want to live a life that's as full and impactful and meaningful as just as anybody else in the community. And I think that is the number one thing. And I'll let Sarah add anything else.
1: And I agree. And, you know, Louise touched on it and we kind of touched on it throughout the panel, that because individuals rely on others in order to meet those life goals and to build those relationships and to live really full lives, then the onus and the responsibility really is on us as the community to be able to support them in doing that. Thank you guys so much. Um, I really appreciate your time and insight, Sarah and Ken, on
0: this very important topic that faces our community and just to highlight the partnerships and collaboration that are moving our work forward. So thank you for joining us today on This is Integral.
2: Thank you, Anne.
1: Thanks.